please stand for the reading of God's word. It is found in Revelation 21, it's verses 1 through 4, and it can be found on page 1041 in your pew Bibles. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. You may be seated. Well, thank you. It's good to see the sisters back together again. So it's fun, so thanks for that. Yes. We are, uh, in our Advent series, we're looking at what it means that Jesus is our Emmanuel, uh, which is the angel announced, that is his name, that uh, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And uh, we see this uh, theme throughout the Bible, and so we're actually looking at this at the very end of the Bible, the second to last chapter, and actually carries on uh, to the very end of what it means that Jesus is our Emmanuel, where God gives us a vision of, um, of what the future is going to be like. Uh, it helps to have an image. I think about, um, about even our own city. I think it's quite remarkable what is going on in our city at, uh, at this time. There's a, a lot of changes, and there are some negative consequences. Traffic has definitely picked up, right? Uh, a little more traffic, a little, few more Texans. We love you guys. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it is, uh, you know, housing prices have gone through the roof. It's had some negative consequences. But there have been some very positive things and some, some exciting things that are going on. Like, uh, for me personally, I'm excited about seeing downtown revitalized. And, uh, and particularly this uh, picture of the, the Olympic Museum. And uh, th that to me is, is pretty fascinating. It used to be you'd go down to America, the beautiful park, and let's be honest, it's a little creepy. Um, it's, uh, it would be uh, at times a bit scary. You're not sure you'd want to take your family down there. And uh, beautiful green space, but, but it was just, um, uh, just so much other, other things going on, an industrial complex. And now they're building this Olympic Museum and uh, a pedestrian bridge that will take you over there. And it'll be a place that you're going to want to go with your family and show your friends when they, uh, when they come to town. And, and I think that's, um, uh, that's something that's going to be exciting for us. Uh, I, I think if someone had just said to me, hey, we're going to build a museum downtown, I don't think I would have found that very inspiring. I, I don't have enough of imagination. I need, I need a little bit more. I need some description. I need to, to sort of see what it's like to be able to visualize it. Uh, now that I've seen the pictures and hear about the project, it's interesting. It's exciting. In order for us to be excited about the future, we have to visualize it. If God simply said, you're going to spend eternity with me forever. I'm, that, that, that's good. Uh, but he does more than that. 
He gives us a picture of what it's going to be like. And the picture, though, that he gives us here, Revelation 21, it's, it's, not, it's not an architectural drawing. It's certainly not a photograph. It's more of, a, of an abstract painting. And so think of something more in the modern era. It's not even a Monet. It's more abstract than that. Uh, as it gives us a chance to visualize what it will be like to be with the Lord for all of eternity. And so we see this in Revelation 21. We're going to look at a good bit of the chapter, so you want to keep your Bible open there. Uh, The first four verses sort of intro uh, what is to follow. But the first thing that we see is that there will be a new city, a new city. Here John gives us a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And it's uh, important to remember that uh, we will not spend all of eternity in heaven. And we oftentimes talk about that. We will not be disembodied spirits floating around on clouds forever. Instead, what the Bible says is that heaven is going to come to earth. And that's the vision uh, that John has here. And at the center of this vision of the new heaven and the new earth is the new Jerusalem. And in verse 2, he sees a new Jerusalem prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Now, that's an image you can get a hold of, right? Uh, Every bride looks beautiful on her wedding day. There's no such thing as an ugly bride. And he gives that image of the, of the beauty of the bride and, uh, that's coming down. Now, he fleshes out what this means in verses 9 to 21. But before we look at the details of this vision, let's make sure we know what it is we're looking at. So in verse 9, an angel says to John, he says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So, so we're about to see a bride. Now, When the Bible talks about the bride or the wife of the lamb, the bride of Christ, it is always referring to the people of God. This is what he uses the term for the church. We are the bride of Christ. We are uh, the bride of the lamb. And so he's he's about to see an image of the church. So the angel says, says, come, I'm going to show you what the church looks like. I'm going to show you what the bride looks like in all of eternity. Now for John... This is important because think about John's situation. He's um, the last of the living apostles. He is an old man banished to the island of Patmos. The church at this time is being persecuted by the Roman Empire. The beast of the Roman Empire is bringing all of its might down to crush the people of God. The, The world is like a harlot, he shows us in Revelation, that is seducing the people of the church away from God. They are being torn apart by false teachers. They are being torn apart by strife. They're being torn apart by persecution. The church looks weak and powerless. And so he's wondering, what's going to happen to the people of God? Is the church going to make it? You may be having those same sort of questions today. Because as we we look at all this going on in the world, and we see what's happening in the Christian movement, it seems that some are selling out uh, for political power. Others are compromising their morals and convictions in order to fit into the world. False teachers abound. uh, And for many, the mission of the church uh, seems secondary to personal comfort. So it's an important question for us. What's going to happen? Is is this going to last? Is is this going to be anything? And so the angel says, come. Look again at verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, And he carries me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and shows me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So notice this. He says, I'm going to show you the church. I'm going to show you what the people of God looks like. And John turns and he looks. What does he see? He sees a city. And so the city then 
is, a, is not a literal city. It's an image of the church. That's what the Bible says here. It is a picture of what the church would be like. Now, God's bride is not a building. God's bride is not a temple. Uh, it's not a city. Uh, ultimately, the bride of Christ is the church. So John is getting an image of the church. So what's the church going to look like? So this is where you see it's an abstract painting. He's not showing a bunch of people in the worship service, right? He's showing a, he's showing a city. And in verses 12 through 14, he says that the city uh, that represents the church has 12 gates. One gate for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it is built upon the foundation of 12 stones, one for each of the apostles of Jesus. So again, notice here we see that this church, the people of God, is the coming together of the Old and the New Testament. It is not that God has an Old Testament people called Israel and a New Testament people called the church. He doesn't have two cities. God is not a, a, a bigamist. He doesn't have two brides. There is one people of God, and it is the people of God that is represented by the Old Testament apostles, I mean Old Testament tribes, sons of Israel, and the 12 apostles, all coming together to form one people. So that's the first thing that we notice about the church. There are one people of God that transcends all the ages, Old Testament, New Testament, one people of God, one bride of Christ. Then in verses 15 to 21, we find this church, uh, the city that represents the church, the bride of Christ, is this giant cube. It has equal length and width and height. The height, width, and length are equal. Remember that detail. We're going to come back to that at the end. Pop quiz at the end, right? Okay. Uh, it's, it's a giant cube, but the, and when we say giant cube, it is a giant cube. It says each side measures 12,000 stadia. Now, I had to look that up. I did not know what a stadia was, but 12,000 stadia is the equivalent of nearly 1,400 miles. So this is a cube that extends from the Pacific to the Mississippi River, from the Canadian border all the way down to Mexico. And it's that tall at the same time. That, to, to get an idea of how tall that is, that is over four times as high as the space station is flying right now. It is 200 Pikes Peaks stacked upon one another. Now, in other words, if you were to get to the top of this tube, you would need a rocket ship. You could not breathe there if this cube were, were literally on, on the earth as it is. So the point here is that God is not actually giving us the physical dimensions of a city, uh, of a cube sitting on top of the earth. Rather, it is, a, it is a description. And so we have the number 12 there that oftentimes represents completion. And the point is, it's massive. It is massive, and it is so massive, it is complete, it will fill the whole earth. Now again, think of this from John's perspective. What's the church like? The church is small, it is weak, it seems powerless. What's the Roman Empire like? Oh, it's almighty. And God says, no, at the end of the day, here's what it's going to be like. The people of God are gonna be, it's gonna fill the world. The temple of God is gonna fill the earth. It's going to be massive, it's gonna be powerful, it's gonna be withstanding. And then he goes on to describe it in further detail. He says the walls around the city, it has a wall around the city, imagine that, uh, that's, uh, that's quite high. Uh, but it's made of jasper, but the city itself 
He describes as being made of gold so pure that it's transparent. Gold so pure you can see right through it. And the foundations of the wall are adorned with these precious stones. Now, what's the point of this image? Well, if you look at the image, you'll notice that it's very similar to the descriptions of the Old Testament temple. The, the, the precious stones, the gold. In fact, Ezekiel, uh, later on, in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, gives a prophetic vision of the temple itself. And so it incorporates all of these things. So what it's saying is that this city is, in a sense, is going to be like a temple. It's going to be the, the dwelling place of God. But, and that's why in verse 22 it says, there is no temple in the city. I remember when uh, we lived in Orlando for a number of years, and Walt Disney had a vision of building a city. And it's called Celebration. And it was to be his ideal city. Do you know what's missing in Celebration? No church. Intentionally, by the way. There was no land for any church. Now, Disney had a vision of a city where you didn't need a church. There's no God. There's no purpose for that sort of thing. He, was, he, was, he did not believe in God. But God here has a vision of a city with no temple. But it's not because you don't need God. It's because God is present everywhere in this city. He says in verse 22, it says, For the temple is the Lord, God and the Almighty and the Lamb. In other words, there's no single isolated building. You won't need to go to church. You won't need to go to the temple in the city. The entire city is a temple because it's a dwelling place of God. And again, this is what he said back in verse 3 that we read earlier. He said in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, interestingly, when he says the dwelling place of God, the word there is the word for tent or the word for tabernacle. And it brings back this Old Testament image that God lived in this tabernacle among the Israelites, which we'll see in a moment, and he made his dwelling among them. And it reminds us of John chapter 1, when, when John, the, the Gospel of John, uh, begins his book, he talks about Jesus, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus. And then he goes on later and says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, that word there, dwelt among us, is tabernacled among us. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus is the true tabernacle, and he's going to dwell among his people. He will be Emmanuel God with us. So let's put all this together. What's the image that, that John sees here? John is taken to, by an angel, and he says, let me show you the bride of the Lamb. And then when he turns to look to see the bride of the Lamb, he sees a city that is so massive that it fills the whole earth. And the city is not just a city, but it's a city that's built like a temple, full of gold and full of jewels. And there, in this city, God makes us dwelling among his people. And so here we see a picture of, of the house, of the mansion of God that fills the earth where all of his people will dwell there in his presence. Now, that's a beautiful image. But uh, a house can be beautiful, but it's never home unless you're there with someone you love. Uh, you know, if you've ever gone on a tour of a castle or, or, a, or a mansion and you'll say, this is a beautiful place, but it feels a bit cold and sterile because for it to be a, a home, you have to be there with loved ones. You have to be there gathering around. You could have the most beautiful house in the world, but if you're there alone, it's not beautiful. And so, so we see the image is taken even further. What makes this house beautiful, the city beautiful, 
uh, is, that, uh, is the one who lives there. So together with this new city, we find that we have a new relationship, a new relationship. Now, reading Revelation 21, now this is, this is the end of the book, right? That's like turning to a, to a fairy tale and skipping to the last page and saying, I don't want all the drama, I just want the last page. And you get to the last page and it says what? And they lived happily ever after. That's, that's not a great story, you know, that one page. You need, you need to know what, they lived happily ever after. I'm looking at Cinderella's castle. Where was Cinderella before? What happened? I need to know that drama. And so in order for Revelation 21 to, to make sense to us and to actually capture imagination, you have to know the drama that goes on before that. So once again, we're going to go all the way back, right? The story of the temple by going all the way back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the Garden of Eden. Now, outside of the Garden of Eden, the world was wild. But God placed uh, them in this paradise, the Eden, that was lush and beautiful. And the Garden was not only Adam and Eve's home, uh, it was the place that they dwelt with God. In fact, the Bible says that God walked with them in the Garden. What image comes to mind when you think of someone walking with someone? You know, I think back to, uh, you know, to, to walking with my grandfather, right? You think of intimacy and of closeness and, and of, of, of a connection that is there. And so Adam and Eve are living there in the garden, and the garden is like a temple where they're, they're, they are, are living in the presence of God, enjoying sweet communion with him, and God gives them a mission. He says, you're to work and till the garden. In fact, you're, you're to subdue the whole earth and fill it. You're to make the whole earth a temple to the Lord, essentially. But of course, uh, we know what happened. Rather than living in this intimate communion with God, Adam and Eve decided they would rather go at it alone. And instead of obeying God's command, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to decide for themselves what's right and wrong. They didn't want God to say, this is good, this is evil. They said, no. We'll decide for ourselves. You're not going to tell us what to do. We are, we're, we're big boys and girls. <laughs> we can decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. And so they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, they rejected God as God. Uh, they no longer would be dependent on their creator. They'd be free to choose for themselves. And uh, when we do that, and all of us have done that ever since Adam and Eve, when we decide we are going to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves rather than submitting to God, we're rejecting God as God. And that's what sin is. Sin is not only, I think we have a, a faulty definition of sin. We think of sin as doing something bad or just doing something wrong. But, but sin is rejecting the authority of God. It's saying, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to make my own decisions. And, uh, and I'm going to, going to decide for myself. You are not the boss of me. And so with that rebellion against God, Adam and Eve, and all of us who've descended since them, were stained with guilt and the contamination of sin. Sin is like filth that is on us. And because the, sin of, the filth of sin is on us, we cannot be in the temple of the Lord. We cannot stand before his presence. As we've said before, you know, the Bible says that God is like a consuming fire. Sin is like gasoline. What happens if you get gasoline too close to the consuming fire, right? You're consumed. And so God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden. They, they're, they're expelled from the garden of Eden because they cannot stand in God's presence anymore. They will be consumed. And as a result uh, of our being exiled from the garden, 
We're all living east of Eden now. We live uh, without that intimate communion with God that they once enjoyed. Our creation suffers as well. We have a, a planet that's in rebellion. We, uh, things don't work the way that they ought. Uh, you know, we have uh, drought and famine, sickness, disease. We have a beautiful world, but just like we are made in the image of God as beautiful creatures, we've been stained by sin. Our world is beautiful, and it's been stained by the corruption of evil as well. It's broken at every point. But God doesn't give up. He still would make his dwelling place with man. So what does he do? God chooses the nation of Israel, and he comes to them, and he says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he calls them out of slavery in Egypt, and then after, when he gives them the Ten Commandments there in the wilderness, he instructs them to build him a tent, to build a tabernacle. And here's the interesting thing. Here's a map of Israel camping in the wilderness, of what it would look like. Here's a map of Israel camp, okay, there, uh, camping in the wilderness, what it would look like. Okay, so here's what it would look like. So God would pitch his tent. They would pitch God's tent in the middle. And notice where the Israelites would camp. Uh, they'd be in the 12 tribes surrounding the tabernacle. So you get the symbolism. God is saying, I'm your God, you're my people, and I'm going to make my dwelling place among you. I'm going to live with you. It's, it's like the Garden of Eden all over again, except it's not. Because we look at the tabernacle, we see, well, God's dwelling with them. And here's a picture of the tabernacle. So notice the tabernacle. So here's a, a, as a, as a map of that, an outline of it. And so what we have here, if you can see my little red dot, you have the outer court. And then this is the tent itself, the tabernacle itself. And the tabernacle itself is divided into two parts. There's the holy place and there's the holy of holies. And there's a curtain that separates the two. And, and the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was uh, uh, it's where the mercy seat is. It's God's throne. In other places, though, it's also described as God's footstool because the whole earth cannot contain the Lord. And so, but it was a symbol of God's presence. But the Israelites could not go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and he could only do it once a year and, and, and after offering sacrifices. And so God is still in their midst, but God has separated you. They can't walk with God like Adam and Eve did. They can't talk with God. There's, they don't have the same communion. God's near, uh, but it's not the same thing. It's, um, and so later on, the Israelites would move into the promised land, and they'd take the tabernacle, and they'd actually build a permanent structure. That's what the temple was. It was based on the same model as a tabernacle. Instead of being a tent, it had stone. And, uh, instead of uh, being smaller, it was larger, and it had gold, and it had jewels. Uh, but it still had the Holy of Holies. God was still separate. God was still apart. Uh, humanity could not draw near. And so to, to imagine it this way, uh, imagine, and you don't have to imagine, you know this. You know what it's like to, to be apart from a loved one. You now you've been together, you've been close, and you talk face to face, and you walk together. And then they move away, or they get deployed. In the old days, what would you do? You'd write letters, and you'd get the letter, and that letter was special, but it wasn't like having them there. And then, then we had telephones, and so you could talk to them on the phone occasionally, and, and that was great, but it's still not like being there. And now we have FaceTime and Skype, and that is terrific. But if FaceTime and Skype are not the same thing as being in the same room and walking and talking together, that's what it was like for the, for, for, for the people of God. God was there. He's in the tabernacle. He's in the temple. But they, 
They can't talk to them. They, they have to send a priest in to intermediate for them. They can't, they can't have that communion with him. They're still separate from God. They're not in the Holy of Holies. Well, th- that all changed with the coming of Jesus. Jesus came to be our Emmanuel, which means God with us. He came to tabernacle among us, but the difference is the tabernacle is even being taken away. When Jesus came, he came to take away, in order for him to be Emmanuel to us, he had to first take away that which separates us from God, that which led to our exile. And he did this through, through what many have called the great exchange. See, we, we cannot come into God's presence because we're so stained with sin and our filth and, and he is a holy God and will be consumed before him. And see, the only way we can go into the Holy of Holies is if that sin is removed. And so Jesus does what's called the great exchange. And the Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's what this looks like. Imagine that Jesus is standing before you, and he's robed in his righteousness. He's wearing a robe of his righteousness, of all of his beauty, of, of, of his holiness, of his goodness, of, of all the good works he's done, of his miracles, of his compassion. And he's robed in that righteousness. And you're standing before him, and you're wearing a robe too. And your robe represents all of your works. Now, you've done some good things. And so there's good things on your robe, but, but, but you've also sinned. You've rebelled against God, you, you've lied, you've cheated, you, you've coveted what your neighbor have, and that sin is on that robe. And so even if your robe is made out of fine linen, it's like you have filth and dirt and grime, and it's disgusting, it's, it's just all over you. And so here's Jesus wearing his robe of righteousness, and here you are wearing the robe of your works. Jesus can go into the Holy of Holies, because he's pure. He's pure. You can't. You can't go before God like that. You can't go dressed like that. So what does Jesus do? He comes to you and he takes off your robe, the robe of your sin, the robe of your filth, and then he takes off his robe and he puts it on you. And now you look at yourself and you're stunningly beautiful because you're covered with the righteousness of Christ. He's cleaned you up, and, and you, are, you are beautiful. And, 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 and men, you have to just convert the imagery. You are the bride adorned for her husband. You, you are radiantly beautiful, so much so that when God looks at you, I, I've been with grooms right here, and they see their brides walking down. The reaction's the same every single time. Wow. Wow. And God says, wow. And now you can go into the Holy of Holies, but that's not all. You still have your robe of your sin and its filth. And Jesus takes that sinful robe and he puts it on himself. And now he can't go into the Holy of Holies because he's covered with sin. He's covered with filth. He's he's disgusting. And that's what Paul says here. He who knew no sin... That's Jesus, who is righteous, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus, because he's covered with that sin, takes 
the full punishment of sin. He, he, he goes to the cross, and the wrath of God is poured out on him, so he suffers the punishment of sin for all of our sin, all the things that we have done, and he takes that wrath upon himself, and he receives the judgment. He is excluded from God's presence because our sin has excluded him. But what about us? We're invited into God's presence. Now, there's something amazing. At the very moment Jesus died, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record the same thing. At the very moment Jesus died, and I'll read it to you from, from, from uh, the Gospel of Mark, here's what happens. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At that very moment of his death, that curtain, that curtain is what separates us from the Holy of Holies, that's the one that keeps God and us apart. We cannot draw near to him. At the moment of Jesus' death, that curtain is torn by God himself and it's ripped apart and God is saying, come into my presence. You now can come before me because Christ is taking your sin away. That's the great exchange. And if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're now before God, righteous and holy, and able to come into his presence with the holiness of God. Now, let's go back for a moment. Now, remember a while back when we were looking at Revelation 21, and we said that the, that the city of Jerusalem was a giant cube. The width, the length, and the height were all exactly the same size. Now, that's an unusual shape for a building. Why would they do that? And the reason is this. The Holy of Holies in the Old Testament was a cube. The length, the width, and the height were all the same. What he's saying is we're not just going to live in the temple. When we get to eternity, we're in the Holy of Holies. We are there in the presence of God. We don't go to the temple to see him. It's not like we offer sacrifice and keep a distance. It's not like he's, he's up there watching us. We're going to walk with God like Adam walked with God. We're going to walk with God like a man walks with a friend. We're going to talk with him and have that intimacy and that communion with him. What we've always longed for. You, even when we didn't know or long, knowing there's something missing, there's something that's, that's not there, finally our hearts will be full. What's going to make eternity great is not that the streets are made of gold. That's going to be awesome. Seeing all your friends and family that have gone before that, that, that know the Lord, that's going to be great. But what ultimately is going to make this amazing is we're going to walk with God. We're going to enjoy that communion with him, that fellowship with him. You know, and, and so what's the whole point of this? Why do you need to know this? Well, we need to know it the same reason John's original readers needed to know this. There are times when you're looking at the church, the, the body of Christ, and even your own life going, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it to follow after God? I mean, you know, you look around and you're going, there are other people who are not following Jesus and their lives seem to be doing pretty well. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they don't, I mean, they, they're having a great day. I, I remember years ago, some good friends of ours were, were deeply involved in the ministry. They're longing to see people come to know Christ and, uh, and so they, at Sundays, every Sunday was just, they worked hard. They worked hard serving others. And, uh, and they gave generously of their money and of their time. One Sunday morning, after a particularly exhausting day at church, 
uh, they'd been working with the kids that morning and it had been just a rough day. They pull into their driveway and they look over and they see their neighbors. Their neighbors are out in their driveway reading the papers, sipping coffee, having a great morning. I mean, it just looked like a great day. And they look like, you know, that looks like a lot of fun. I wouldn't mind if my days were like that. And, and it, it seems like that would be better, I mean, than, than, than exhausting ourselves like that. And, and it would be great, wouldn't it? Just sitting there enjoying life. It would be great. But if the kingdom of God is real, then we're living for something far better. Revelation reminds us the end of the story. One day the church of Jesus will be radiantly beautiful like a bride adorned for her husband. One day God will wipe away every tear. One day our hearts will be full. One day we will live forever in the presence of the Lord and we'll walk with him like we're on a stroll for friends. And we, when we remember these things, we press on in the faith because we know where we're going and we know it will be worth it. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come before you now and we pray that you would grip our hearts with the vision of where we're going. Lord, I know many, many here are tired. They've been walking with you for some time. They've given, they've sacrificed, they've worked. And they're wondering, is, is this worth it? There's some that are here who are being lured by the temptations that the world has to offer, and they're so, so attractive. And they seem to be so much better than what you're offering, at least for now. There's some here that are actually facing hardship because they are Christians. Their life is harder now because they're following you. And they're wondering, is it worth it? Oh, Lord, we pray. Give us a vision for where we're going, for the hope that we have, that we would press on, that we would not grow weary and we would not lose heart.